1: We live in a time when advanced medicine can give us the ability to live longer and longer. But ultimately death is a reality and advanced medicine, most especially conveyor belt medicine, is not set up to prepare us for a peaceful death. The final reality of death is unavoidable, but the path to it is unpredictable. No matter how much we want to control things, disabilities can arrive suddenly in the form of a heart attack or a stroke, or we or a loved one get a diagnosis of a disease such as cancer or another prolonged illness, and we find ourselves in the thrall of Western medicine. How do we remain clear-headed about our choices? And when should we say enough is enough? and choose as best we can to die well. Most of us agree that we can use some guidance in this area and this will serve as the focus of our exploration today with our guest, Katie Butler. Katie Butler is a journalist and speaker on doctor-patient communication and choices families face near the end of life. She's the author of Knocking on Heaven's Door, and The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. Join us for the next hour as we explore how to cope with chronic medical conditions and the end-of-life issues with our guest, Katie Butler. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Katie, welcome. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. I'm Equally delighted to have you. I would love for you, first of all, I know I mentioned in the introduction that we live longer and longer. So we're facing some issues that maybe in centuries ago people didn't really face, and choices now that we can make. And I think that you really give a poignant example. This was something from your first book, Knocking on Heaven's Door, the story of your father. Can you tell us that story, and and it helps to hold what what it is that you have to contribute?
2: Yes. In a sense, my parents did everything right. They were healthy, they walked, they ate their vegetables, and they signed advanced directives. They thought they were very clear about their end-of-life values. My dad had a major stroke at the age of 79, And it really was the end of his happiness. But he lived for another six and a half years. And part of the reason he lived so long in such an unhappy state is that he was given a pacemaker a couple of years into this debilitating period of life. And unfortunately, that pacemaker forced his heart to outlive his brain And it forced him to outlive his happiness.
1: What were some of uh, the symptoms that he was living with in that six and a half years? Yeah, Things obviously
2: got worse over time. But everything from not being able to finish a sentence, to not being able to fasten his belt, to not being able to see well enough, to read, dementia terrible process into blindness, misery, incapacity. And he wasn't happy in those states. This was a man who loved to argue and sit around the dinner table and talk politics and had been the paterfamilias, really the head of the family. And this was a very difficult, long decline for him and also absolutely a horrible thing for my mother, who became his full-time caregiver.
1: And she was aging as well. So I know that at one point you asked the doctor to remove or uh, the pacemaker or deactivate. to deactivate it. And how how did that turn out?
2: That was a pretty horrible experience. About eight months before my father actually died, my mother asked me to help her get this pacemaker deactivated and I called his cardiologist and she and I were basically treated as though we were moral monsters and he later told me that it would have been like putting a pillow over my father's head. Now deactivating a pacemaker is actually a painless, it's a totally painless process. There's no intervention, there's no surgery, it's just a matter of a radio beacon basically turning off the device itself.
1: And what was your end thought about deactivating it why did you even want to do that
2: because the suffering in the family was so great it was unsupportable it was unbearable
1: not only for your mother and those supporting your father but your father as well Absolutely. is that right and how could you tell that he was suffering did he speak about it or what what mm-hmm. how did you know while he could still speak he said things like I'm
2: living too long. And unfortunately, I come from long-lived people. And in the latest throes of his dementia, he also became so speechless and so angry and started to, to rage. And the distress was just so palpable. Mm-hmm. And actually in very early stages, right after the first stroke, I talked to him and said, do you feel your life is worth living? And he said, I've gone through so much in my life. He'd lost his arm in World War II. He'd gone through major, terrible blows. And he basically said, I mean, this was miming. This was not all in words because he didn't have many Mm -hmm. words at that Mm -hmm. point. But he said, but this, this. And really what I picked up was I was able to roll with those earlier punches, but this is too much.
1: And the earlier ones were not insignificant.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was a very resilient, Mm -hmm. adaptable human being, but he got to the point where this was too much to take.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that and, and giving this context of your own personal experience. And I know that you've interviewed lots of people throughout your, your book. There are all sorts of stories that illustrate mm-hmm. things that you're talking about. One of the chapters is called Resilience and i thought that that was a, that's good for any of us at any age whether we're eldering we're getting older we're in the last well, i don't know quarter of our life or whatever you want to say or whether we're young and as i said life is unpredictable so uh, resilient so let's start there
2: great I just want to fill something in here first, which is that what I realized from my dad's experience is that these questions are much more nuanced than we are giving them credit. We think if we fill out an advance directive that just says, if I'm comatose or within six months of dying, make sure I don't die on machines. And we think that if we sign that document and check those boxes and maybe go to a spiritual retreat on death in the abstract, we've got it all taken care of. But there's actually this big gray zone between active living and active dying. And these decisions are subtle and they occur one after another as our stages and our health changes. So I ended up dividing the book into seven stages. And each one is a different health stage, different life stage, with a different set of spiritual, emotional, and medical challenges. And the very first, as you pointed out, is resilience. So I named the first stage resilience because this is where you still have some margins and you can also still reverse and delay conditions that might seem inevitable. And we may not be able to stop everything from happening to us eventually, but we can sure stretch out our time in resilience. And what I learned doing the book is that you can reverse conditions and improve them way later in life than I had any inkling, really. You can be over 65. You can be a smoker. You can still improve things in, in this
1: resilience phase. So what are some of the increments of resilience well, I think the most important thing which you hear a lot
2: is this half an hour of vigorous exercise a day. That will delay and postpone any disability that you might be facing later on, especially things like dementia. Forget the computer games, forget the
1: crossword puzzles. Go out and, you know, work up a sweat. Walk with a friend. This is like oxygenating your brain and what that's doing, and also moving your joints. Exactly, so exactly. it does a kind of dual thing, yeah. doesn't it?
2: and you, you can make it a triple thing. If you go with a friend, then you have the joy of personal interaction, or if you go and walk in nature, then you're also feeding your soul in a spiritual way. These things can be really fun, and you can find joy in them.
1: And all of them are You're you're talking about joy. You're talking about being with a friend. These are all little keys in exercise. They're all keys in resilience. Absolutely. And if you look at the end game, who, who are you to figure out your quality of life
2: when you have 10 minutes left or three days left? That's not the time to figure out what quality of life means to you. The time to figure out quality of life, is right now and start to maximize it. If you can find out what gives you comfort, joy, and meaning now and maximize it and cultivate it, you're going to be a better position later on down the road when you know it's time to Do stop. Do you find
1: that in in the interviews that you've done for uh, the mm-hmm. book and, and just your overall work, that people who have a, a spiritual practice or who believe that there's something more than just this material body Then once it dies and the brain dies, that's it, you're gone, and that's it. But people who have feel like something continues on, that they have an easier time in the dying process? I wish I could say yes,
2: but I don't think that's necessarily so. Uh, there are a lot of um, Christian people with deeply held beliefs in heaven who really struggle with... Letting go. Likewise, very devout African Americans who really believe in God and in miracles often have a hard time saying it's time to stop medical technologies. I do believe, however, that having, becoming a creature of habit and having a daily spiritual practice makes a huge difference. I mean, for me, it's going back to half an hour of rigorous sense sitting every single morning It's taking a swim every afternoon after lunch. It's making a gratitude list in the evening for what I'm grateful for. Because I think these practices, no matter what the spirituality behind them, those practices, they create a strong muscle in yourself for the challenges of later life or any unfixable illness at any age.
1: Yes. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Katie Butler. She is the author of The Art of Dying Well, a practical guide to a good end of life. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Katie Butler. She spells her name K-A-T-Y Butler, B-U-T-L-E-R. And she is the author of The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, katiebutler.com. Katie, I know that you have an idea that there are three miracle drugs. What are those three drugs?
2: I think the three miracle drugs of later life are water, exercise, and community. Exercise has tremendous health benefits. A lot of times people in later life get dizzy or fatigued, and often a glass of water is actually the way to go, one glass or two or three our bodies are 50 only 50% water when we're in later life whereas younger people may have 80 90% of their bodies are water so we really have to prime the pump a lot Ooh, more Oh I
1: didn't know that that as we age we need even more water we dry up and I know for myself I do at minimum 64 ounces uh, I have my Four bottles that I have to have finished by the mm-hmm. end of the day. Mm-hmm. So that's the way I kind yeah. of judge myself. And sometimes I mm-hmm. set an alarm when mm-hmm. I'm at the computer, and every 10 minutes it'll go off and I have to yeah. sip some water. Yeah. My
2: my theory is water out, water in.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> and then there's water out, right? Yeah. Okay, you know. And then and the last one. It's community. And...
2: Which, again, you can go to the research and you can see that it benefits you. But you don't even have to go to the research. My advice is deepen all your relationships. When you go see that barista every morning, say a kind word to her. Ask her about her kids. Maximize both your weak connections and deepen your strong connections so that if you're... A single person, a lot of us are either single or are going to be single before we die. It really makes sense to have a strong connection with a neighbor. Or maybe you create a relationship with a friend that has some of the depth and commitment of a marriage in the sense of you're going to see each other through to the very end. I just think look for any opportunity because not only will it make you happier, But it will also create more of a safety net for you if you do hit a really vulnerable period. Or you do need to go to chemo, and you do need rides to chemo. The more of those weak connections you have, as well as those strong connections, better
1: off you're going to be. And you do it, there will be a benefit in the long run. Mm -hmm. But it's also a benefit of just... Not being lonely. I mean, loneliness is one of the huge maladies in our culture in in the U.S. Being lonely, being isolated. Yeah, Yeah. and I have faith,
2: and I mean, this is why I sort of wrote the book, which that we do. We have agency. We have capacity. We don't have to just drift along. And you can make a conscious effort to improve your quality of life now or your friendships. It doesn't take much. Sometimes it just takes that little piece of advice like say hi to the barista. Just make that little effort that takes you just a millimeter out of your own habits or your own comfort zone.
1: That's nice. That's nice. And I'm, I'm thinking about when you say drug, these miracle drugs, you know, these three that mm-hmm. we don't often think of as drugs. I, I want to talk about pharmaceuticals. Because I know that you mentioned it, and when I opened up, we were talking about Mm -hmm. medicine and Western medicine and some of the things where it it can shine in many ways. And then there are other ways that it is not so beneficial that we need to be cautious. And there are a lot of cautions you have in the book. And one of them that you mentioned that I thought was very interesting, a lot of us do a lot of our own research on the Internet, Or we see all these ads uh, that are constantly popping up, especially pharmaceutical ads. So what do you have to say about the whole idea of medications?
2: I think the watchword is discernment. For example, blood sugar-lowering drugs, blood pressure drugs, even statins for some people. All of these can have long-term benefits and their side effects are relatively low. There are other drugs that we are popping like candy that increase our risk of dementia exponentially. And the older body doesn't process drugs as fast as the younger body. So you end up with all these drugs layering on top of each other because your kidneys aren't processing them, your liver's not processing them. So they're all building up in your system and interacting with each other.
1: And I think that you mentioned also that, like, mm-hmm. if we find something on the Internet to kind of pay attention, as you say, discern who's paying for this ad. Where, where did it come from? Because pharmaceuticals have a huge budget, and I think you mentioned specifically that there are 3,000 pharmaceutical lobbyists in Washington, D.C. alone. Exactly. Can you imagine
2: Exactly. The money that is being poured at you to shape your behavior and make you think that for every ill there is a pill is almost uncountable. I mean, I've always been cautious about drugs all my life, but as you age, I think it just becomes. And this, this includes over-the-counter things. I, I mean, I think a beautiful illustration of this is sleep remedies. So Benadryl, if you use Benadryl week after week after week and similar things that are over-the-counter, you are increasing your risk of dementia, of developing dementia within the next 10 years. And I feel like sleep is such a perfect example because there's so many things you can do to improve your sleep that are not drug-related, and you should really try every single one of those before you start hitting up a drug, whether it's over-the-counter or an Rx take a hot bath, have a cup of chamomile tea. I mean, these are things you can find on the Internet easily, and they're actually there's no downside to them. There's no potential harm. So the places I do check are Mayo Clinic, Cochrane Library, and a very good site called Drugs.com. None of these are pharmaceutically um, paid for. You've got to consider the source. If they're trying to sell you something, Take it with a grain of salt.
1: You talk about chemotherapy; even that can be over-treated. You mentioned something yeah. about palliative chemotherapy, chemo.
2: Yeah. Let me say something about chemo. It it can provide, especially the first round and the or the first round or two of chemo, can provide people with significant extra decent time. But after two rounds, the benefits start to. Go away, and by the fourth round, there's no benefit statistically, chemo versus no chemo. You do not improve your quality of life or your length of life.
1: So there are always exceptions, and when you say statistically, there's the the mean... Statistic, and then there are those that are the exception, above or Absolutely. below the line. Mm-hmm. But I know you give an example yeah. of someone who was. Yeah, she was at a very famous hospital that's so well respected, and yeah. she had gone through yeah. umpteen chemotherapies. And yeah. do you remember this story? Yeah, and I, I think what we
2: what we look at are the upsides of drugs, and we. Don't look enough at the downsides. And something that's quite common with extended chemo is what happened to this woman, which is she got chemo. Her hair fell out. But not only that, she got a, she got sick. She got a bad reaction from the chemo. So she went into the hospital. And in the hospital, she picked up a disease, uh, uh, an infection called C. diff, which is a terrible intestinal infection. It gives you... Life threatening diarrhea it can kill you. And so she nearly died, not from the chemo, but from the fact that her immune system was weakened and therefore she couldn't fight off the C. diff. And hospitals are dangerous places, and she was in the hospital. So you end up on this with this cascade, this downward cascade, and then you die, not of the chemo but of the side effects and the consequences of the chemo. And that's
1: really interesting because then the statistics will show, oh, she died of pneumonia or she died of something else. She died of C. diff. And and it doesn't show anything about the chemo and what effect it had. And this is where our medical, whole medical paradigm is very skewed these days. And you just feel like you have to know so much. (laughs)
2: it's it's very hard to see things holistically because the system is so fragmented you know you see a million different healthcare providers and there's a different billing systems and so you you lose touch with yourself as a full person with other desires than simply living as long as possible. You're right. It's kind of overwhelming, which is kind of where I, why I wrote the book, because I tried to simplify it into sections so it could be absorbable. But I want to say one more thing about that woman, which is that she then went on hospice, okay? She went on hospice. Everybody thought she was going to die within, you know, a month. But she recovered from the C. diff on hospice,
1: Because she wasn't on chemo anymore. She wasn't on
2: chemo anymore, and all of her health care was directed to supporting her quality of life. And lo and behold, they supported her quality of life, and much to everyone's surprise, her length of life just stretched on and on. And her hospice nurse said to her, Do the things you love. Do what you love. So she went back to work at her dress shop. She continued to work until six weeks before she died. And she was on morphine. She had her pain controlled. And she was able to continue with a very, very meaningful life. So she was on hospice for nearly a year when she was really expected to die within a month. That's amazing. The one thing I want to say about chemo is that We have an absolutely corrupt billing system for oncologists, which is, it's called buy and bill. They are paid 4.8% markup on the cost of the chemo. This creates an incentive for giving chemo long after it is useful, and it also for providing the most expensive chemo because their pay is con- directly connected to those costs. This is scandalous and a lot of oncologists don't like it. They would rather be better paid for their time and not have it, you know, linked to the chemo that so they're providing. So
1: there's there's uh, uh, an incentive.
2: There's an incentive to do the wrong thing. Yeah. And essentially it's not fair to them because why should they be not paid at all to have a really serious in-depth conversation with you about where things are heading and only be paid for
1: providing you chemo that's just wrong so so they're not really supporting that kind of uh, conversation mm-hmm. or taking the time. And we're just given mm-hmm. the menu. I, I know you talk about giving a menu and saying, okay, mm-hmm. well, here are your options. And it's like reading a menu, and you get to choose these life mm-hmm. decisions from this menu yeah. of A, B, C, or what? what's your hors d'oeuvre and what's your main course. And it's yeah. like ridiculous.
2: The The billing system I, promotes poor care, poor quality of life, over-technologizing of the end of life. And it's not really the fault of the oncologists, it's not the fault of the cardiologists, it's not our fault as so-called ignorant consumers. The billing system has set up everybody for a disastrous situation.
1: I'm here with... Katie Butler, she's the author of The Art of Dying Well, a practical guide to a good end of life. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Katie Butler. She's the author of The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. And, Katie, um, you mentioned earlier something about hospice. Can you please tell us, what is hospice? What are the advantages of it? What does it provide? And what does it not provide? Hospice
2: in the United States is a bundle of services paid for by insurance. What it usually provides you is the ability to die at home and have your pain really well controlled. It addresses not it addresses you as a whole person, not just simply as a bundle of diagnoses that need to be shaped up. So people come to your house, or if you're living in assisted living or anywhere else, they'll come to wherever you are. And... Probably the number one benefit is really sophisticated pain control and symptom control. I think hospice nurses are probably above and beyond most doctors in those areas.
1: And when your pain's control, Above and beyond knowing how... Pain management. How, how to do it effectively. Exactly. Yeah. Because they're really hands-on. They're seeing someone yeah. a lot and they, they know what's going on.
2: Yeah. And a lot of people approaching the end of life have pain. Yes, so that's number one. But they look at you as a whole person, so they might say, "Well, what really matters to you?"
1: So there might be a chaplain p- uh, part part of hospice. That's Absolutely, it. chaplains, social workers, physical therapy,
2: nurse, doctor. All of these people can come to your home as you need it and really help you plan, support your family. Make sure the family knows what's going on, and they can be incredibly reassuring for your family about what the end of life is going to look like. I remember when my dad was on hospice in a hospital, a hospice unit within a hospital, I remember the hospice nurse saying, well, this is what's going to happen. You know, his feet are going to turn blue, and his breathing is going to get irregular, and there was something about it that was just so reassuring to know other people have gone through this before. It's not an emergency. This is what it looks like. So they can be amazingly supportive on every dimension, spiritually, emotionally, mediating between family members. My brother and my mother got to have some very meaningful reconciliation that was facilitated by hospice, the hospice team right before she died. I think for some reason we've become... Terrified of hospice for no good reason, as though going on hospice means you're going to die tomorrow. And a lot of times people get kind of dumped on hospice just for the last three or four days of life when it's actually a benefit that you can enjoy for at least six months and in some cases for a full year. And my sort of number one would just say, explore it sooner rather than later.
1: Now tell me, isn't it true that with hospice that... You need a couple of doctors to say, well, it looks like the diagnosis is mm-hmm. this person has six months to live. Yeah. So there's that to get it on the insurance through Medicare or Medicaid or or whatever it is, Medi-Cal in California.
2: And I think this is one of the huge drawbacks of hospice. This six months is an absolutely arbitrary time limit I think people should be able to be on hospice for two years if necessary if what they want is home-based medical care focused on comfort rather than cure anybody who's in that position ought to get it and the idea that you should be able to predict the exact length of time is just actually ridiculous so that's one of the disadvantages no, let
1: me just mm-hmm. let me just say something about that, mm-hmm. because like mm-hmm. someone might say, "Oh well, if if we had all of these people on hospice care, it would just be too expensive." Let's say in Medicare, it would just be way too expensive. Mm-hmm. But what are we saving on the mm-hmm. other side of that if we didn't have it, and and we and we don't have it now, so. What are the things that crop up? Well, why are we so willing to pay
2: $6,000 for a one-day hospital stay, but we're giving the hospice only $167 to provide services at home for a day? So
1: this might be uh, somebody um, had a fall or or something where somebody calls 9-11 and, and they end up in the ER, or something, mm-hmm. I, it just is crazy-making, and, and that's so expensive. It is crazy-making. Dying in an ICU can cost
2: four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars 500000 An ambulance ride can sometimes cost $6,000. So wouldn't it be better to be providing people with home-based care so they don't fall in the first place, or physical therapy at home, or an occupational Therapy check of the house to see what the hazards are. Why don't we front load these minor, less glamorous medical needs, and lower the way we reward these crisis driven? We didn't prepare for it beforehand, and now we're in a crisis.
1: But Katie, we we don't have uh, the lobby. Mm-hmm. The lobbies in Congress yeah. and in Washington D.C. to stand up for these things because they don't, mm-hmm. they they are not part of the uh, economy of some the G, GDP or something. You know, I mean, it is a service that's being provided, but mm-hmm. because it's not making a lot of money for investors, so to speak, then it's it's just well, discounted. We, we
2: fund technology not time and technology is scalable. Once you invent a pacemaker you can make basically the same thing and get paid $25,000 $12,000 a device it's you can just keep printing money. But if you're paying physical therapists and occupational therapists, you're just paying for time. There's really not way. There's no way to build a lot of profit into that. And so, unfortunately, because we have the powerful lobbies that are really shaping our healthcare system, we are focusing on these high-tech interventions that are profitable and not on... The soulful person-to-person work right. that we really need. So
1: this is information that everybody needs because we all need. We need to have more yeah. than three thousand lobbyists in Washington D.C. We need seventy-four mm. million lobbyists in Washington D.C. Just and saying, I
2: think it's important. Keep writing your Congress people if you don't have. You know, there's not adequate caregiver support in your community, or whatever it is, keep writing and putting this on the agenda. Or if you go to those town hall meetings that get held, raise these questions, because this is, it's, you know, they talk about a silver tsunami, which is us upcoming baby boomers as we hit these more vulnerable years. We are going to have to be addressed one way or another. The society is going to need to address it. And I think the more we can get this onto the front burner of our health system and our political system, the better it's going to be. But let me go back. I'd like to talk to you about the disadvantages of hospice. yes. One is just simply the difficulty getting on if you're just declining slowly with no super obvious diagnosis. The second is hospice does not provide hands-on bedside care hour by hour. And this is really a shocking surprise to a lot of families. The hospice nurse will come in. She'll provide a very valuable service, but she's going to leave in an hour, an hour and a half. And so you need a tribe. You need one dedicated friend or relative who will really be the tentpole for the whole system, and you need a bunch of other people who are willing to step up and drive you somewhere, drop off groceries, wash the sheets, whatever it may be. There's a wonderful book called Share the Care, which has a lovely description of how to divvy up these tasks. One is Share the Care, and the other is lotsahelpinghands.org. Lots uh, oh, hands. Oh, yeah,
1: lots. L O T S A helpinghands.org, .org. lots of mm-hmm. helpinghands.org. So so yeah. do, do those yeah. are two excellent sites. Yeah,
2: And but, whatever, you know, I think one of the things I learned in the book is you do what works for you. You know, if what works for you is getting everybody together to have one big meeting and talk about it and decide who's doing what, do that. If you're somebody who's really comfortable online, do that.
1: Yeah, do it. And going back to uh, being at home and actually dying at home, mm-hmm. there's something that's really, really important that you emphasize in the book. And there at, at death, two things. One, don't call 9 11. <laughs> that's a, you have a huge, like blinking red light, you know. And secondly, after death, you need someone to sign off on the death certificate, and you've got to be very careful about that. And those two, I mean, i got—I got to say, because I know people who have run into this and had horror stories. So please tell us about this.
2: I cannot tell you how many well-educated, including medical people that I know, thought they had everything laid out well. But at the last minute... Someone, a caregiver, somebody panicked and called 911. And the result was dying turned from being a natural process into an emergency. Unfortunately, in just about every state except Oregon, if you call 911 and people think it's an emergency, they will revive first and look for your paperwork
1: Second So even if you have do not resuscitate order, they will they won't pay attention to that because they're coming in and they're they're, they're doing the paddles and the the all the stuff that would intervene in any mm-hmm. any situation and get the yeah. heart and the breathing st- started again yeah. yeah and so and rush them off to ER and rush
2: them off to ER and I've also there was this, there was a case in New York where the woman had been dead for over an hour. And when the paramedics came in, called by the daughter, in a panic, called the wrong person, uh, they spent 45 minutes pulling her onto the floor and so-called reviving her dead body. So, I'm beating her. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I think what's really important is to have some alternatives to calling 911. You know, it's like there's two things. One is have an alternative to calling 911, and the other is if someone does die at home, do not, again, don't call 911 and say that it's an expected death. You need a plan ahead of time because people do panic. Dying is not an emergency, but people haven't seen a lot of death now, and so they do panic. They get scared. So you need a reassuring person you can call. You need maybe a physician house call service if you know of someone who's willing to come. You need a visiting nurse service. Anything, any form of reassurance that will reassure the caregivers so they don't call 911.
1: Okay, we're gonna come back to that subject in just one moment. I'm here with Katie Butler. She's the author of The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide. To a Good End of Life. She's also the author of Knocking on Heaven's Door, just for your information. I'm Justine Mm Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Katie Butler, and she's the author of The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. And we're talking about a home death. And we've covered, like, don't call 911. But if you do call someone, there is certain wording that you need to do, and who would you call? So help us out there.
2: If someone dies at home without medical supervision, not on hospice, First of all, make a note of the time of death, but do not feel compelled to call anyone immediately. Make sure you say your goodbyes, make sure you sit with the body if that's what you want to do, or wash and anoint the body, take a walk with the dog, wait an hour or two. And then you will need someone to come to the house, a medical person, to Uh, sign the certificate noting the hour of death. It could be a nurse. It could be a hospice. It could be a visiting physician service. And if you don't have access to any of those, I suggest you call the business line of the coroner, the medical examiner, and say, this was an expected death. This was an expected death. Those words will reassure everybody in the kind of medical legal community that you need to be spoken, you need to speak to.
1: Otherwise, they're going to treat it maybe as a homicide. I mean, it becomes a criminal criminal. They have to do a criminal investigation if that's not if you don't use some if precise you, language. Exactly.
2: You don't want the sheriff showing up with the sirens blaring, and you don't want the EMTs showing up thinking that they're going to revive the person. Right. So if you say this was an expected death, this person had a terminal illness or this person was 99 and then they can come and your your chances of things going smoothly are way 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 improved. <laughs>
1: So, you know these are just, and all of this is in the book, so I just want to assure people hey you don't have to remember this. this is just sort of jogging you to say hey this this is a wealth of information that you'll you'll want for for your own edification yeah. in your family." Mm-hmm. I think that there is one that really kind of pops up for me when, as if we've either had a Uh, some sort of illness that's debilitating in some way, or uh, aging, just the the aging process. Mm -hmm. What is your advice about accepting a new normal? I feel, again, it's a constant process
2: of discernment, and I turn over and over again to the serenity prayer. You know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think as we proceed into these later stages of life where so many of our conditions become unfixable, whether it's emotional loss or it's the loss of stamina or the loss of a friend, We're always going to be navigating this subtle oscillation between acceptance and action. And again, I think this is a reason why I think it's a good idea to have a spiritual practice is that this process of letting go and accepting things is so important. And part of what it does is it takes us off the hook. We have, we live in this very go getter up by the bootstrap society in which if you fail, it's because you didn't think positively enough or you didn't make enough effort or you weren't motivated enough. a lot of individualistic striving. And the reality is that all of our lives, we face numerous things that are unfixable and that we by ourselves alone cannot change. And I think if we have acceptance we can take ourselves off the hook and not blame ourselves because we're all getting old. We're all losing our stamina. We all are going to face diseases or chronic illnesses that we um, we didn't ask for. I think it's just very important to stay in touch with the heart and what really matters, the ability to love and receive love. And
1: What about um, talking to... Our loved ones, if it's obvious that they're 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 not going to recover, they're not going to bounce back, mm-hmm. and uh, about really being very upfront about that, and to ask them about mm-hmm. their wishes about dying or whatever. It, what's mm-hmm. your advice about that? I mean, I yeah. guess it's very individual, but well, uh, a couple things. One is to not
2: force force it on people. It's ideal to do it every year on New Year's Day rather than waiting for a health crisis to do it. And I say start with the shallow end of the pool, which is what gives your life joy? What gives your life meaning? What are your fears? What medical treatments would you not want if you felt you couldn't do the things that make your life worth living? I think sometimes it's just a matter of listening. At some stage, people start saying things like "No more hospitals" or "I'm ready for Jesus to take me," and to not shut them down when they say that and say, "Oh, Mom, don't be morbid," but actually explore it. What does that mean to you? Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, I think so too. I, I uh, I've been privileged to midwife. I'll say a handful of people—my my own mother and two mother-in-laws, my husband. It's not as frightening to actually talk about these things. And I want to say, I want to just say mm-hmm. something to our listeners about what you've written here and the gift that you've given us, Katie, in the, in this book and um, the art of dying well. And one of the pieces that is just extraordinary when you talk about making up your medical directive. There's a way that that you give a whole couple of pages of Mm -hmm. what you have personally written that here's what if if I get to this stage, here's what you should do as my proxy in case you're in dementia or a coma or something, here's what I want you to do. If I'm here, here's the quality of life I want. Here's, mm-hmm. And you go through this whole, like, maybe 20, 25 of them, and they are extraordinary. The medical directives, what are they, and why should we do them, and why should we revise them?
2: Medical directives are a form of self-protection from a medical system that has gone amok and does not always ask you what matters to you and just does things to you. So they are a self-defense mechanism, and we all ought to sign them. However, they've been written in such a medical, legal, dry way that we end up feeling intimidated and we, we look at them, we check a few boxes and we don't even know where to send them and then we shove them in a file and forget them about them for another year. And this, I mean, 70% of people have not signed them. I would encourage you to see this as an act of deep spiritual maturity and to see it as a sacred act which is contemplating your own death which almost every major religion counsels people to do way ahead of any kind of health crisis. And if you can bring that kind of honor and bring your full self to it, you have a better shot at completing it. The problem is these things have been written from the top down. They've been written to address the concerns and anxieties of medical people in emergency rooms and in ICUs who have a very tough time when somebody comes in and they are supposed to do everything and they know they're causing this person pain. But we need to look at them from the bottom up. And I just encourage you to start with a first draft that's just a personal letter to the person you love who will probably be making these decisions so that you really put out what your real fears are, what your desires are around all these issues.
1: So I want to say that for, for me, um, I've, I've done a little bit of this. I mm-hmm. Now reading the book, I'm going to do more. I mean, And in fact, uh, I do this with a circle of friends. Yes. And that's what I'm doing and I've already written as uh, so I said our next subject we need to revisit our end of life care again. We've done it before several times. But I can see it it mm-hmm. needs constant revision and the ideas we get from other people that they might think of something that we haven't thought of.
2: This is a rite of passage. This is not a checkbox. And if you can regard it as a rite of passage and do it in community and understand the depth and support you need to do this, I think you're going to be way ahead of the game on every front. I'd like to share with you something from my medical directive, the one that I have for if I develop dementia. As a human being who currently has the moral and intellectual capacity to make my own decisions, I want you to know that I care about the emotional, financial, and practical burdens that dementia places on those who love me. So let my wishes guide you. I wish to remove all barriers to a natural, peaceful, and timely death. Please ask my medical team to provide comfort care only. Do not transport me to a hospital. I prefer to die in the place that has become my home. Do not treat my infections with antibiotics. Give me painkillers instead.
1: So these are a couple of, just a couple of, it goes on for another whole page and a half. And I know that that's going to have people really wanting to, to to read the rest of it because and that and other things too. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry we ran out of time, but I'm thank you so much, Katie, for being with us today.
2: Thank you, my pleasure.
1: I've been speaking with Katie Butler, the author of The Art of Dying Well: A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life, and her website is katiebutler.com. Katie K A T Y. Butler, B-U-T-L-E-R, dot Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3668.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.